Morning, church. I'm going to start our time together reading from a psalm that is, uh, I have no doubt, very familiar to most, if not all of you. One that we often read uh, in different times of life, more often than not in the times that are full of discomfort. Um, And this psalm has become one that has evolved and grown into something far more than I once thought it was, uh, as it has become even more dear to me in the months that have passed than it ever was before. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's quite a psalm, isn't it? And one that is very comforting. Because the back end of that psalm reminds us that our well-being, our hope, our future is placed and founded and exclusively in one who is faithful and able to produce it. And so we can sit in the harder journeys of our life knowing that he will indeed bring about great goodness and mercy, and hope, and stability, and beauty uh, in his journey with us. But the first part of the psalm, I think I often misunderstand, especially that initial part where it's like, gosh, um, you know, he, he is my shepherd, I shall not want, and, and I know that not to be true on most days. Can we really say that we do not want for anything because Jesus is our shepherd? I have not found that to be easy or true. A lot, there's much to want for on this planet, much to want for in relationship, much to want for in things. So that, that is something, it's beautiful, but boy, do we wrestle with that as humans. Do we wrestle? Is he enough? And then this beautiful part of him walking us through these pastures. And then it says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I'm like, oh, yes. Yes, I want that. But I realized that the very next part of the psalm says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there seems to be a connection of sorts between what he just said. I will walk you into paths of righteousness, but on a planet full of death and unredeemed spaces, both inside and out, 
to walk you into paths of righteousness may not be green pastures or quiet, still waters. Sometimes it may just be the valley of what will feel like death. Because to redeem what is inside of us requires a great work of sanctification, and it does not come with ease. In fact, scripture often refers to that work as a refiner's fire, as a fire that burns and heats to the point of melting, dying as a metal, so that that which is not pure may come forth. And so I look at the psalm now, and I think to myself, gosh, there's such a greater clarity to the journey into paths of righteousness that I have now after the last six months. So today, I'm going to share with you guys a little of my journey over the last six months. I say six, I don't even know how long it's been. It feels like 25 years. So maybe it's been five and a half months, maybe. But since Easter of this year, when I went on what we called a sabbatical, we need to redefine that term in the dictionary, sabbatical, because it apparently is about resting and going to the beach and relaxing and... Uh, though that did happen on some occasion, that was not what this sabbatical was about. This was a working sabbatical, working on allowing God to work on me. Um, and so I'm going to share some today. So this will be a bit different from our ordinary spaces here. If this is uh, new to you uh, being at Mosaic, we usually are traveling through the journey, going through letters and scripture and uh, exploring the wonders of a passage of scripture. And today will be more like a testimony will be more like me shouting from the rooftops of what God has done and what God is doing in me, the brutal and the beautiful. That is beautiful for him and beautiful work that will be realized, but often is an experience of brutality as he tears through that which needs redeeming. One of my favorite books, honestly, I think perhaps my favorite, it moves from number one to number two or three and then back to number one, back and forth, um, is a book called Heinz Feet, in high places. And it is an allegory um, that the author wrote about the journey from the low places where we live and our fears and our insecurities and our, and our, our wants into the high places where the shepherd calls us forth into places of freedom where he is enough for us and he is everything to us. And so there is a character in the book called Much Afraid and she lives in the Valley of Fears And it is her journey out of the valley of fears to the high places. And like us, she assumed that the journey to the high places is one that is upward. But it turns out, as scripture so beautifully expresses, that the journey to our sanctification is not upward all the time. It is up and it is down. It is into deep and dark places and high and beautiful places. It is on mountains of surrender and in valleys of shadows. It is brutal and it is beautiful. And so uh, in the very beginning of her journey to the high places, she has um, dysfunction and she has deficit. Her legs don't work as they should. And so to climb to the high places, you need hinds feet like a deer. And she doesn't have them. And so God says, I will give you what you need to get to the high places. And I will give you companions to help you along the way for you to get there. And early on in the book and I think the third chapter, she meets her companions who will lead her to the high places because the shepherd will be with her, but also not. And when she encounters these two companions, they seem dark. They seem mysterious. They seem not happy, joyful, fun, peace. And she says this 
um, she asks about these companions. What are their names? Who are these two people? And, and the shepherd says, they are good teachers indeed. I have few better. As for their names, much afraid, I will tell you them in your own language. And later you will learn what they are called in their own tongue. This, he said, motioning toward the first of the silent figures, is sorrow. And the other is her twin sister suffering. Poor much afraid, her cheeks blanched and she began to tremble from head to toe. She felt like she was going to faint and clung to the shepherd for support. I, I can't go with them. She gasped, I I can't, I can't. Oh, my Lord shepherd, why do you do this to me? How can I travel in their company? It is more than I can bear. You tell me that the mountain way itself is so steep and difficult that I cannot climb it alone. Then why, oh, why must you make sorrow and suffering my companions? Couldn't you have given me joy and peace to go with? A couple months ago, uh, I think nine or so, so late, latter part of 2020, we made a decision here that uh, we wanted to bring some light to the internal functionings of Mosaic, uh, the staff and the leadership here, to determine where we have blind spots, what we are not seeing that we do not know we are not seeing, where we are not leading well or doing well where the unredeemed spaces within our staff team exist. And so we did a leadership audit. Uh, A a company came in, an outside company, because you can always see better when it's somebody else, right? It's not helpful to try to see yourself because you're just too defensive. And so um, it's just human, welcome. Um, And so they came in and they did a massive work here. They interviewed all of our staff. They walked through a bunch of elders and deacons. They They did surveys, they worked hard for a couple of months to try to determine how the staff were experiencing leadership in this place. And out of that incredible work came the the enlightening, the report. Hey, here's what we found. Here's the beauty we found. Here are the strengths of leadership in this place. And here's the brutality we found. And here are where leadership is not helpful and damaging Uh, knowingly or unknowingly. And out of that report, um, there were a number of different things that dealt with uh, the leadership here. Uh, A large part of it, obviously, toward my leadership because I have the privilege and responsibility of playing a lead role here. And out of that report uh, came some of the leadership strengths that are in me and some of the leadership deficits or the damaging things that are in me. And it was fairly good news initially to me because most of the list of leadership damaging things, I'm like, I knew those. (laughs) So that might sound strange to you that you're like, hold on, you knew they were there, but you were like happy to I'm like, no, no, yeah, because um, I was quite aware that those are some of my weaknesses. And because I have a certain transparency, 
I, was, I had already told all the staff, hey, these are some of the things you'll encounter if you encounter Renault. He can be a bit unreliable because he makes promises that he intends to keep but forgets to or doesn't, or he overpromises and underdelivers, or he doesn't love structure. So, you know, he's a little like, hey, free for all. Um, it's not quite that bad. But, like, uh, you know, the, and the, there was a list of them. And if you were here, then we, I got on the stage and I shared some of those out of the report. And I'm like, hey, got it, know those. And, and so one of the challenges that was put forth before me is, okay, great, so, so psyched that you know what these are, um, but why do you assume that they shouldn't be transformed? It's like you're behaving like since everyone knows what they are, and since I've told everyone, now I can do them, and you know I didn't mean it. And if I didn't mean it, well, then I'm not on the hook, right? So they kind of challenged me, like, you have an entire theology that says transformation is what God calls us into, and yet you kind of just hold these like a, you know, like, oh, that's me, my weaknesses, it's just who I am. Um, And so why don't we take some time and see if maybe Jesus wants to see those transformed? And so we took the uh, step back, and the elders were gracious enough here to say, hey, why don't you take some time? We'll call it a sabbatical. Um, It's a time, a break, a Sabbath, if you will, but not a Sabbath to go rest up, a a Sabbath to go and explore, to go and expose, to go and see what you do not see. As I entered this space of Sabbathing, uh, of sabbatical, uh, little did I know what I would be encountering, but one sentence that came to my attention in some regularity from the group that came and did that, as well as from those here is this, Um, Renaud, you do not yet know what you do not know. You do not know what you do not know. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, they're like, you know what's on the list of your deficits, but you do not know what you do not know. You do not know where these come from. You do not know where your blind spots exist. You do not yet know how deep this runs. And none of us know you are going to go and explore. So I entered the sabbatical space, really desiring and wanting to know what I do not know. Uh, What is blind to me uh, is a great concern, and I want to know what I do not see. So I knew entering into the sabbatical that some things would hinder my uh, willingness to be exposed fully and to explore fully. And one of those things is my desire to be back in the spaces that I love, lead pastor, mosaic church, vocational ministry, all these things that are part of my life that I have assumed would be part of my life until I take my last breath in some way. And so my journey began in what I affectionately in my imagination called the Mount of Surrender. Uh, In the book, um, Hind's Feet in High Places, each chapter is a picture of something. So she has the cliffs of, of, um, of uh, injury. She has the, the uh, shores of loneliness. She has the, so there's all these different, the desert. So each chapter is a different place where significant things in her transformation happened. And so my story plays into some of those affectionate spaces in my mind where I encountered things. And the first one was the Mount of Surrender. I entered the sabbatical trying as best I could to come to God and say, God, I really want to see. And so in order to do that, I must surrender that which I hold dear. I'm not going to surrender my wife and kids because 
Uh, I love them some days and I kind of hate them some days, but they are mine and I am theirs. And that is a covenant you have called me into. And I will finish that covenant out until my last breath. So I won't surrender them, but that which can be taken from me, uh, meaning that I can move in a vocational ministry, uh, mosaic church, position of lead pastor, all these things, I, I give them to you. I don't want to walk into the sabbatical space assuming that they are mine when I return. What if I am not the right person to keep leading in this place? What if my position in this place shouldn't be lead pastor, but some other position, and we bring somebody else in to lead? What if vocational ministry is not my future? Now, bringing those things might sound little to you, but these are things that I am anticipating will be a part of who I am for the rest of my life. It's all I know in many ways. And so to put them on the table required me saying, uh, gosh, I don't want them to determine how I explore. Here's why. If I encounter things in my exploration that start suggesting I can't be lead pastor anymore, I might become overly defensive and go, let's close that door. But if that is not on the table, then perhaps I can go there. Now, it turns out, just so you know, that surrendering things, uh, the easy part is going to the mountain and saying you surrender them. But the real test for surrender doesn't come when you give them up. It comes when you feel their loss. Let me say that again. Real surrender doesn't come when you say you're giving it up. It comes when you feel its loss. And then it points to your soul and says, gosh, how does that feel? And everything in you wants to draw back and take back what feels like grave loss. So over the few months, uh, on multiple occasions, uh, I had real encounters during those few months on different, through different process where the real reality of whether or not I should be back in this place or I am right for this place became deeply real. And I'll touch on some of that to the point where there were moments where I'm like, I cannot lead anymore. Um, it was in those places that the real surrender takes place where God says, if this becomes true, are you still okay? Am I still enough? God offered me a beach um, and I'm jumping ahead just because the beach and the mountain are so connected. I didn't want to travel the journey and then end up on the beach with you because it would be disconnected. But God offered me a beach late in the journey, uh, maybe uh, two months ago, after much surrender had taken place, where my wife and I were literally walking on the beach and Brooke said to me, hey, out of curiosity, has it been difficult to have relationship with God in intimacy? Have you found your intimacy with God difficult when you lost the spaces that more often you found your intimacy with God? And what do I mean by that? I study the word of God every week diligently because I have to come here and preach. Now, I love both those endeavors, but it is an opportunity for me where much of my encounter with God is woven into the work I do. And I find that a joyous thing, not a burden. And during the week, I engage with people and shepherding. I come to meetings all the time where I encounter your beauty and your brutality, and I don't know what I'm going to encounter, and half the time it's above my pay grade, and yet I am shepherd, uh, co-shepherd with Christ and other pastors, and so I've got to enter these spaces. So much of my relationship with God is a constant, like, God, you need to give me wisdom. God, you need to be with me. And so Brooke said, when all that went away, you haven't prepared a message in months, you, ha you haven't met with anyone in months. You haven't shepherded anyone in months. Have you found that there isn't much to talk to God about? And I processed that on that beach. And God was gracious 
to show me that actually my relationship with God hadn't diminished one ounce. That as I had hoped would be true, believed might be, and isn't always just because we hope it and believe it, that my belief that our relationship with God and our mission has got little to do with what we do and much to do with why and how we do it. That whether I am pastor or husband or father, whether I am friend or neighbor, whether I am a sharer of the roads of Florida, whether I am uh, engaged in this workplace or that, whether it is business or ministry or nonprofit, those are just what we do. And they do not determine or should not determine neither our value nor our intimacy with God. What should determine that is that whatever we find ourselves doing, that we do it with the clarity that I am participating with God in redeeming unredeemed things. And so it turned out for me that my dynamic with God shifted to the dailiness in which I lived then without vocational ministry or preparing a message. It was in encounters with my wife or my children or my friends or myself. I encountered myself, all my beauty and all my brutality over and over again. And I had lots of conversations with myself, several of myself. No, don't take that too far. Um, And so I said to Brooke, you know what? God has shown me that the well-being of Mosaic, the future of Mosaic, the place that is Mosaic, my position here as lead pastor, it turns out these are not idols in my heart. And I am grateful for that. Turns out I can live with this or live without this. Turns out that my connection with God has little to do with what I do here, yet what I do here enhances it and is a gift. And that was beautiful. My surrender on a mountain that was hypothetical after much travel through the loss of that, God confirmed to be a freedom that I have. But that was a small piece of much brutality that I would walk into. So my journey began as I came off the mountain of surrender, entering into what I affectionately call the valley of light. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? The valley of light. But think of it more as the valley of searing sun. (laughs) Because light and searing sun turn out to be the same thing. And when you walk into a valley with a searing light burning down, it brings a desert And to enter that desert, I started with my first encounter on this journey, and it was with a man named Rick. I did not know him then. I know him very well now, and he knows me better than he ought to. Uh, He is a therapist, and he does these therapeutic intensives as one of the things that he does. And my journey began with a four-day therapeutic intensive, where if you don't know what I mean by that is, from 8 a.m. in the morning until 6 p.m. at night with a 30-minute lunch break, you sit face to face with a person that is trained and equipped to explore every depth of your soul and life from the time you were conceived to where you stand now. And not just exploring what is observable, but to go with you and dig into the places to find what is hidden. So Rick, I literally met him starting this. So can you imagine? Hi, human, I don't know you. I'm about to expose myself to you for four straight days in the most intensive way so that you can explore in me all things that need to be found that I don't even yet see. That is the awkwardest of awkward things. And God offered that to me. There's a movie um, called uh, The Neverending Story. It just came to me this morning again. And there's a main character called Atreyu in this movie. And there's a scene in the movie where Atreyu has to walk into a place where um, things are going to be done. And he gets to this gate. 
and it is the gate of seeing. I forget what it's called. I didn't go look at the scene again because I just remembered this morning. But uh, the, the, in the book, what it says is you can't enter this next level until you are fully exposed to the monster that resides within you. You've heard some of that language a bit. And I feel like the beginning of my journey was a gateway where God said, before we walk into the desert or the valley of light, of searing sun, uh, we must walk through the gate of seeing. And so in those four days we explored, and what Rick told me was that what we are after, what we are looking for, is where my fears are hidden. We are all afraid. See, I don't think I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the dark, and I'm afraid of high things, like roller coasters. And so I turn lights off regularly, and I get on roller coasters all the time. Because those are the only two places my fears exist, and I fight fear by defying fear. And so you know what I am? I am unafraid. Hmm. And Rick said, hmm. Hmm. You do not know <laughs> what you do not know. For someone who lives unafraid, it is a thing to say, let's go search for your fears. And I will tell you, I started that journey saying, good luck. I'm game. Let's go. And so we did. And he said, we will search for your fears because they are in you. Everyone is afraid. We will search for your securities because everyone has security in places that are other than Christ. All of us where we feel safe other than Christ. We are always sharing our security and we ought not to, but we do. So we're going to go search. Where do you feel secure in things that are not Christ, but are things you need? It is what we might call, where are your needs? And then finally, where are you insecure? Where are you afraid? If this doesn't happen, I will not survive. We all are afraid. We all find security in places other than Jesus. And we all are insecure. And so we dug. And I have good news I was not afraid, insecure, and my security is only in Jesus. <laughs> Just kidding. Turns out I do not know what I do not know. And we found all three in spades. So my fears, as we entered into that space, it turns out that I am afraid of pain. Hmm. It's such an odd thing for me because I like pain because it's mission. We get out there, we go charge into the unredeemed spaces, we charge the gates of hell, we break through and boy, it's going to be painful. I mean, I've gone through pain my whole life at the hands of mission and it's not that kind of pain I'm afraid of. It is what the pain does inside of me and when I encounter the pain inside of others that I find my fears. I don't like pain. None of us like pain. But when I encounter pain, I need to move that pain as quickly as possible to a place of security so that it's no longer pain. I need to make it go away. And I have learned over my lifetime incredible mechanisms to make pain go away quickly for myself. They're not all terrible mechanisms. They are actually some very beautiful and biblical. So when I share these things with you, it doesn't mean I abandoned all things and I'm just going to live in terrible pain from now on. But it does mean that the fine line between escaping pain and dealing with pain is fine. See, for me, I have a great theology 
I have eternity that is offered me by the revelation of God where all things will be made new. And I have a God who said he is finishing every good work in me. So whatever the current pain is, it is inevitably going to come to its end soon enough. I also come from a family that had great security and safety. So I felt loved my whole life. I don't have big trauma from my family of origin. And so I have a sense about me that I am loved. And that came from my childhood. And so between a security of love and safety from childhood that not all of us have and a secure theology that not all of us have, I have a deep secure space that whenever I encounter pain, I can move that pain quickly this way before it makes me feel anxious or stressed or afraid or any of those negative emotions, the things that like get you all bent out of shape. I just quickly move the pain to God is good. There is an eternity. I am safe. I am loved. Boom. I also, it turns out, when I am pained by other humans, which happens a lot. I used to have this saying I said six months ago and the rest of my life before that, try to offend me. You can't. Well, I take it back. <laughs> I take it back. I've been offended my whole life. I've just done something with it. When you hurt me or offend me, when anybody does, I help myself believe that your motives couldn't have been bad. Because if your motives were good, then whatever you just did to me, you didn't mean it. And so therefore it's not pain and therefore I'm not hurt. And therefore I don't have to come tell you that you hurt me. Also, if you happen to have bad motives, then I just convince myself that hurt people hurt people. So you must be hurt. Now I feel sorry that you're hurt and I'm no longer in pain because even though you hurt me, it really means that you're hurt. So I should come and help you because you're hurt. And that way, you can't hurt me, except that it still hurt. But I moved that pain to secure places. And I did it because I'm afraid of pain. I don't want to sit in it. I don't want to linger with it. I don't want to explore it. I don't want to process it. I just want to get rid of it. Now, here's where it gets tricky. That's me. But as a shepherd, co-shepherding with Jesus, good shepherding means that when Jesus comes to us, he doesn't just make our pain go away. He sits in it with us. He came to this planet. He sweat. He went to the bathroom. He ate. He got tired. He was beaten. He was hurt and he was crucified so that he could say to us, I know what it is like to be in pain. And when I encounter your pain, I will sit with you and we will process it together. Work through it, not just get rid of it, so that it can heal and not be gone. As a shepherd, because I am so afraid of pain, when I encounter it in you, I process your pain for you. I don't process your pain with you. Some of you are now going to go, that's what he did. <laughs> it felt good in the meeting, didn't it? Because I can bring the gospel to bear, and I can do things, and I can help you. And that's not all bad. That's a good thing. But the shadow side of that is that once we've got rid of your pain because we've moved it quickly to a gospel and quickly up here and quickly there and God is good and all is well, not pixie dust, real theology and real truths, but we did not process it together. I just processed it for you because it's faster and more efficient because I'm good at it because I've practiced my own life. That is poor shepherding. And so encountering my first fear it began to tap into, Renault. when you shepherd, you have deficit because you don't know how to walk with people in their pain. You just know how to walk for people in their pain. And good shepherds walk with them 
Teach them to process it. Don't just process it for them. You have much to learn, Renaud. Also, since I'm so afraid of pain, I don't bring to others the offenses that they have affected on me. Why do that? Well, perhaps because Matthew said we should when the Holy Spirit inspired him and said, when you have offended someone or someone's offended, you go to them and, and t- talk to them. Matthew 18, preach it, preach it, brother. Turns out I don't really believe it. And you're like, what? I'm like, no, I thought I believed it, but I don't really do it because I absorb your pain or your offense and then I don't bring it back to you because why? If I bring you the pain you've caused me, what does that cause you? Pain, pain, and I don't do pain. Gosh, if I encounter it, I get rid of it. I'm sure not bringing it. Are you out of your mind? Like people that are afraid of pain don't bring pain to others. And so what has happened is that though I, by myself, do not set a good example for all of us to be able to come with the things that we need to, the offenses that linger that eventually turn into bitterness if we're not careful and bring it to each other in an act of vulnerability and confession. If I don't do that well and I don't teach that well, then I can preach Matthew 18 all day long, but it's not going to translate. And so what I've discovered, what we've discovered is that in our culture here at Mosaic, especially our staff culture, I have done a poor job in creating the spaces where we have the freedom to bring our offenses to each other in regularity. We neither know how to do it well, nor do we know how to receive it well. And that's true for all of us. Some of us here are like, I bring my pain to everyone all the time. You offend me, I'm the first one rolling in. I'll tell you second by second. I wear it on my old sleeve. I know you do. Thank you. You're so good at Matthew 18. But what you ought to do is perhaps learn how to bring it better. Because when it comes, it comes hard and fast and all the time and it's overwhelming. We don't know how to bring it well often. So some of us don't bring it at all, like me, welcome. And some of us bring it, but we don't bring it well. And then none of us have really learned well how to receive it well, how to receive it in the security we have in Christ, how to receive it well. And so when we receive it, we immediately move toward defensiveness, deflection, and all the other wonderful things we do. And then the pain of the other person is not validated, and then they stop bringing it. Welcome to planet human. And man, as a good shepherd to our staff and a good shepherd to you, this is an area I should have taught well and led well in, and I haven't. And so I look at that and go, my fear has cost us. And it turns out in not bringing pain regularly and not teaching to bring pain regularly, you know what I've caused on the staff? More pain. Boy, you should sit in someone's seat when their greatest fear and greatest work is try to avoid bringing pain to everyone only to discover in a sabbatical that all I've been doing is bringing more pain than I ever imagined possible. You should sit there and try to say, I'm going to come back. The beach in Costa Rica surfing without humans around is what starts happening in you then. I ain't ever rolling back into another human because all I do is hurt. But that was just the beginning of the seeing eye. (laughs) Um, My security exists in a strange place. My well-being is tied to the well-being of others. We have words like codependent that go with that. You can go look it up in the dictionary. So fine. So what we do, those of us that function like I do in security, is this. I am well when you are well. So for me to feel well, secure, safe, good, my work is to make you feel well. And if I can get you to feel well, if you seem happy and excited and well 
and stable, then I feel happy, excited, well, and stable. And if you are in pain, then I am in pain. And if I'm in pain and I'm not well, and that's because you're not well, what am I going to do to you? Make you better. Make you well. So do I care a great deal about your well-being? Gosh, I hope so. Like I'm a little uncertain. It's gray. But I really do hope so. I really do hope that uh, much of my motive is that I actually want you to experience the gospel and I want you to experience security in Christ and I want you to be well and I want you to feel safe on a planet that is unsafe. I, I hope that much of what I do up here is out of a good place of wanting that for you, but I also want to be well and if you're not well, I'm not. And so there is gray in my motive that my security, my idol, which is where I want to be well, that idol whispers to me, they don't seem well, make them well. And so that pushes my shepherding into places that I overcompensate to make sure everyone's well. And I'm not tolerable of unwellness, but it's okay not to be well sometimes. And it's okay to sit for longer periods in pain. That's why I avoid pain because when you're unwell, I try to fix it. And so with my security being tied to well-being, I certainly never protest anything. You can't offend me. And if you did, I won't tell you because I don't want you to be unwell because I told you something hard. And my insecurity, that place that if this is not true, then I feel not just unwell, but I feel insecure. I don't feel secure. I don't feel stable is a third place. My insecurity exists when people do not believe my motives or my heart. See, it turns out I don't care what people think about me and my success and my stuff. I don't care that, like, I've just always been that way. I don't really need people to think well of me. I, and I've always been quite proud of that, actually. Like, it feels really safe to me. I'm like, you can think whatever you want to me. I don't really care. Because my, my uh, stability, my security, my value is not tied to you. I mean, I like you, but I'm good with Jesus. And so I've always lived my whole life believing wholeheartedly that I don't care what people think about me. And I've lived in that freedom until I went and sat with this person, Rick. I hate him. <laughs> I love you, Rick. He's been an extraordinary helper to me and continues to be. Where Rick discovered with me as we traveled, and I got to see through his eyes, that I work very hard to make sure that people know that my motives are in the right place. Now, I hope I can say that mostly I'm working hard, not because they're in the wrong place and I want to try to trick you, but because I'm afraid that by an action that you might perceive as a motive is wrong, that you might perceive my motives to be wrong. And I can't live with that, apparently. So what I do is I overcompensate regularly by telling people what my motives are before they have the option to decide for themselves. It sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? I would never give you the chance to decide for yourself what my motives are. Goodness gracious, that would be terribly dangerous because you might think that they're wrong. So I'm going to tell you ahead of time what they are. I'll give you a great example. When we do fundraisers around here, 
I'm always the dude in every fundraising space. Like, we got to tell them we don't need their money. We got to tell them we don't want their money. We got to tell them that they shouldn't, they can give it anywhere, anytime, which is all true. These are all truths. They are absolutely true. But I wouldn't ever want you to think that we actually do this because we want your money and we are about your money. And so because I'm so afraid that you might think that we think that, I will make sure that you don't give here. No, like legit. That's a great example, but I do that my whole life in all sorts of ways. I constantly work diligently to make sure that everybody knows my heart is good. And I have this false belief that if my heart is good, my motives are right, then whatever actions I affect on you that hurt you, they can't hurt you because I've been transparent about how I hurt you and my motives are right. And doesn't that excuse the hurt? I mean, surely... Well, yeah, I did that thing. I was unreliable. I broke a promise, but I meant to keep it. And my heart was right when I made it. And the reason I didn't keep it is because I'm forgetful. Oh, well, I'm no longer hurt. See, I believed that about how I receive hurt. And I believed that about how I gave it. That's why I could get away with, yep, I saw the report. It's all the stuff in it. I already told everyone. Transparency. And my heart is right. Motive. They're good. Excellent. I can't hurt you. You know what turns out to be true? Actions affected with right motives when they are affected badly still hurt people. And that hurt needs to be dealt with. It needs to be brought to the table. Confession needs to happen if the hurt affected and repentance needs to take place transformation of the things that you do that hurt people shouldn't be dependent on whether your motives were right or wrong or whether you thought that transparency was enough. And so it turns out for me that the belief that motives are the solution to pain, I am obsessed with people knowing that at least my motives are right. But you know what's funny? I shouldn't care what you think about my motives. Because Jesus is enough. I shouldn't care if you think my heart's in the right place or not. That is an idol in my life. And I have seen that idol now. The work to kill that idol will be a while. Because even sitting here, I'm like, I just want you to know my heart's right. I feel it inside of me. It's itching. And I have to defy that over and over again. Doesn't matter. Let them make their own decision. And so in the seeing, I learned much. And then, and that was just some, by the way, if I told you everything I learned in those four days, <laughs> we'd be here for months. I walked out of that time into then the desert. And in the desert, it was the time for me to take all this seeing and start saying, what the heck does it mean? Like, it's a lot of brutality. I had no idea what was coming next because the real brutality hadn't even arrived yet. So I walked into the desert space where I got some time to linger and process out what it could mean that these are my idols and these are my spaces of insecurity, my spaces of fear, and my spaces of security. And what do I do well and what don't I? And is it okay to inspire people still? And should I, should I ever? I, mean, I just don't know it so much. And so I got to spend some time lingering. And then God said, okay, we're ready now. And I walked into what I affectionately call the cave of despair darkness, dread. You can fill in the blank. In this cave, there is a pool. And when you stare into this pool, something extraordinary happens. See, I've learned in this process while I was gone 
that we cannot as humans see ourselves rightly until we see ourselves through the eyes of others. We can see some of ourselves, but not all of ourselves because we believe things about ourselves by our blind spots, right? So in order to see ourselves rightly, we have to have the eyes of others. Now, it's one thing to have a therapist in a room help you see because he can guide you or she can guide you. But the real seeing happens when you go to the people that know you and you ask them, how do you experience me? I, I, I just want to tell you, never ask that question <laughs> to anyone. I'm just kidding. You should. You see, because I've learned that even though one might be very self-aware, self-awareness is limited because others experience you in ways you are unaware that they experience you in. And it is part of our gift that we give to each other to come to each other and say, hey, FYI, I experience you this way. See, we are great as humans extracting the good stuff from that. Tell me, how do you experience me? You're just awesome in this way and this way. Thank you. I didn't believe that about myself, but now I do. But as soon as somebody comes to us and says, hey, FYI, when you do that, it feels this way. What do we do? Defensiveness, explanation. That's what I do. When I encounter your pain or your offense toward me or whatever, I either explain it away with gospel clarities or I promise it away. Uh, Look, look, God's truths make it all better. Look, look, I promise you will fix it in the future. But promising and explaining things away when we encounter them is not helpful. And so I walked into this cave, and in this cave, I began to hear from others. So we, as part of the sabbatical process, created some weeks. They were sort of separated by a couple weeks at a time. It was one week at a time. And what those weeks were about is the staff here were given the opportunity, uh, and a few others, to come and sit with me in a room for four to five hours at a time, And there were some people in the room. Rick, the guy that did my stuff, was in the room. Safe place, helper. And then two others, uh, usually, sometimes one other. And they were the guides for this room. And it was called a week of restoration. And what it was is a room where somebody could come and they could say everything they need to say to you that has been hard about their experience with you. All the offenses, they could go back as far as they wanted, touch on as much as they wanted. And so for a week at a time, I would sit And each morning and each afternoon for the week, I would have a different person come in that's close to me on our staff and say, here's what's been really hard about you. And then you walk through a process of hearing that and validating that and owning that or becoming a jerk and being totally defensive. Either way, it's totally open. It's your option. And both occur in some regularity. But to be able to walk through that. And during that time, those three separate weeks, doing that more than 20 times, Man, you see a lot. See, all the stuff you learn about yourself in a therapeutic intensive, it starts getting real, real. Because now you encounter the pain you've caused. See, when I did these other things, when I moved people's pain quickly, or I was unreliable, or I uh, did all these things, it turns out they caused pain. And now for the first time, people could bring that to me fully, and they could say, here's how I experience you. So one, it took those things I learned and it made them real and true. Renault, stare into the pain you've caused. Own it and choose to either confess it and repent of it or choose to run from it. Something else happened in that place, in that pool of seeing, because we cannot see ourselves until we see how others experience us. Two other things I learned there. I learned there what I've already said, that regardless of motive, Our actions can cause pain to others, whether they are from right motives or wrong motives. So I heard a lot of people share a lot of things where I caused them pain. And my temptation was to say, oh, 
I mean, I feel you. But when I caused that pain, my heart was actually, I was trying to do this. I didn't mean it. My intent was this. These words were used. And what I was taught during those times as I fumbled my way through that is to say, super glad your heart was right. Oh, so beautiful. It was still painful. And so you owe this person confession and repentance because you hurt them. The other thing I learned was the darkest thing I think perhaps I've learned along the way. As people shared about how they experienced me, I would hear in some regularity people say things like, it was difficult to say no to you. Like it was difficult, like if you brought something to the table, an idea, a mission, or whatever, like, and we were in a room, it's sort of like, okay. And sometimes in my head, I was like, not okay, stupid. But I like, I don't know how to bring that. It was hard. And so I started hearing this a little bit. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I deeply feel that what I want to be and what I've tried to be my whole life as a leader is someone who empowers others. That's, I've, I've shared that a lot. That's my goal in life. I want to be the kind of leader that isn't the kind of leader that I do what I want and you follow me. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to be the guy in the back, like seeing you all become what you can be. That's my goal. Like, I want to, I want to give you wings and be the wind beneath your wings. I forgot the saying in the nine and I decided to ask and someone reminded me, wings beneath the wind. No, no, wind beneath the wings. Thank you. So that's what I want to be. And, and because of that, because that's such, so dear to me that I empower others, that I inspire others, that I have others do bigger things they ever believed that they could ever do. That's, that's my jo- happy place. Um, the people I feel the most like struggle with are bullies. In leadership, people that are narcissists that, that come along and they force people to do things. They make people. If you don't, you, you're punished. And so we live in a culture right now where we're finding much of that, right? And in the church and outside the church. And so whenever I saw that, I'm like, oh, that's the worst. That's terrible. People that take their leadership and force others to do stuff with it, hate that. And so I would hear this. And Rick, my dear friend who I hate, um, would say things like, hey, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is that maybe you were stuck or maybe even forced. And I'm like, time out, not a word you can use. I've never forced anyone to do anything. And then they're like, no, no, I don't feel forced. I mean, Renault was always available and, and team player. And he's like, no, I, I feel like the word you're using, forced, might be helpful. And as we dug into that more person after person, here's what we discovered. The people around me do often feel a little, a little dizzied by what I call inspiration, right? So uh, God gave me a scene out of a movie to describe this to me. You know Braveheart? I don't know if you've all seen Braveheart, but if you haven't, you know, um, whatever. It's your problem, not mine. Um, in Braveheart, there's a scene where um, a bunch of farmers with pitchforks who have never fought a day in their life are crowded together and to bring freedom to Scotland, they're going to charge this army of like English soldiers with real swords, right? And they don't want to charge because it's a suicide mission and they don't fight and the people that do fight do fight and it's crazy. So they're going to go home and they're like protesting. We shouldn't do 
this. Look, it's crazy. And Braveheart gets up on his little white horse and he does the little speech that we all like, oh, you know, and I've always held that up as the way I lead. I legit, I've used that scene to say, look, that's how I lead. Um, and, and I do. And, and so here's what happens. He gets up on the white horse and he charges back and forth and he's like, you can go and sleep in your beds for another 30 years, but you will sleep not free and die in your bed someday anyway. You may as well die on this field and be doing it for freedom. And then all the people are like, yeah. And then he charges in the white horse. And there's this scene, I've watched it again, where one guy with a little like garden fork looks over at another guy and you can see the look in their eyes like, does this feel as stupid to you as it feels to me? (laughs) I'm just saying, like the dude's crazy. But what do you do? What do you do? I mean, you're there and you have a fork and he's charging. And so you're like, let's go. Were those people forced to charge into that battle? Good, good, good. You're both right. Yes and no. And it turns out in my leadership, I am so unaware that sometimes the sheer force of my zeal and inspiration can sometimes not leave room for people just to kind of say, before we go, quick question, like Thomas used to with Jesus all the time. Boy, I don't know about these bozos, but that sounds dumb to me. And then opportunity to engage in conversation. We might still charge. We might not. But up to now, it seems we just always have. And so I have much to learn. Because I don't want to be the kind of leader that makes people feel like they're doing things that they don't want to do. But I also want to be the kind of leader that inspires people to do more than they ever thought they could. And where the line is in that is a learning that I have to go continue to figure out. Because I don't want to change and just be a dude not on a horse at all going, yep, looks dangerous, let's not do it. But I don't want to be a dude that just goes and hopes you come. And to be a person that has always believed that my leadership has been a space of freedom and inspiration and empowerment to discover that sometimes it's not is a deep wound, a deep despair. And if there was ever time that I thought to myself, I'm rolling out, I'm not coming back, I can't lead anymore because I will not find myself in a place where I make people feel that way ever again. God has been gracious to encounter me in the quiet of my own heart in some very profound encounters, one in particular where he whispered and said, "Ah, your leadership's not done yet you see more clearly now and you'll still charge a little more than you ought at times and learn not to at times, but I will teach you and I will teach all of you together. I have much to learn on making Matthew 18 a real thing for me, for us and for our staff. I have much to learn on leading with just as much inspiration, but a little less crazy zeal. I have much to learn to leave room for others to be part of things. And by God's grace, I'm grateful that I will have that opportunity because I will tell you, I came to a place where that surrendering on that mountain became a reality for me. I get it, God. I am not the right guy. I cannot do this. I am a crazy leader that forces people to do things that they don't want to do while not giving them any room to protest their hard stuff and I don't even shepherd them well. I'm out. And God was like, not totally true. There's lots of great things your leadership does. You're just starting to see the gray. 
and we will transform it in time. I shared with my wife a couple of months ago, like one or two, I got to this place that I encountered after the caves of death or despair or whatever you want to call them, the seeing that I love because I've seen more in those caves than I've ever seen in my whole life, even though they were super hard, that I came to what I now call the potter's wheel. Uh, I am 47 years old. And so I've been watching God form me for 47 years. Well, probably the first 10, I wasn't conscious of God forming me. I was just 10 um, and smaller. But, you know, for most of my life, I've been watching God form me. And you kind of get to a point in your life where you're old enough where you start kind of getting a general picture of what God is doing with you, you know? Like, it's not quite complete, but you're like, oh, it looks like I'm a vase. I like that. Like, I'm a vase. It's kind of small, but it's a vase. And it doesn't have color yet. He hasn't like put it in the oven and, and glossed it with like beauty. You don't know if it's going to be flowers or if it's going to be like sports cars on the vase. Um, but you generally like, I think it's a vase. And at 47 years old, I was pretty confident that I had a general sense of where God was taking me. I've always been someone that has vision. So I'm like, I know where I'm going. And at the point that I hit all those things, it felt like God, as the potter, looked at this wheel, saw the vase almost formed and went, hmm. It's not right. And just went. (laughs) And everything I've known to be life turned into a lump of clay. Like I was zero again. It was shocking. And you wonder in those moments, is God going to take the clay and go, well, that didn't work out. And I'll go get some, I don't know, wonder the deserts. But it turns out all God was doing was to say, maybe, maybe we do a teacup. So I don't know what he's going to do. I'm not saying I'm a teacup, (laughs) but I might be. But I'm sort of excited to be standing here going, well, God, we got a lump, and you got some crazy cool hands. So you form me into whatever the heck you want. But the forming, the forming comes in the dying So we have this beautiful space um, where we always go to asking God to expose us, don't we? God, I want to walk in the light. So we say things like this, Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. (laughs) It's like refine me, test me, put me in the cave of death. Try me. And know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And we're like, oh, bring it, God. Because sometimes we forget that Jesus also said this. In John chapter 12, he's speaking of what he has to go through to redeem us, which was the start of what we have to go through to see redemption take place. And he said this, truly, truly, I say to you, in verse 24 of chapter 12 of the book of John, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If we want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, it turns out that we will have to die multiple times over. In that book I told you that's my favorite, here's some other quotes that will close our time out tonight, today, this morning. I'm confused. 
at a certain point, just as much afraid was going to climb up um, into some hard places, the shepherd told her this. It is a great privilege, and if you will, you also may learn the lesson of the furnace and of the great darkness, just as surely as did those before you. Those who come down to the furnace go on their way afterwards as royal men and women. We will not see Christ-likeness until we are willing to open ourselves up to the grand exposure of the valley of the searing sun and the cave where the pool of the seeing exists, where we let others tell us what we cannot see so that what we do not know that we do not know becomes true and right. And when you find it out, it will feel like you are discovering monsters within yourself that you have and do not have the strength to tolerate. And there and there alone will Jesus be in the room to say to you, I have been here all along. I have seen this of you before you were born. I see you fully. You are safe with me. Sorry that you're just seeing this monster now. There is this um, incredible space where the shepherd said too much afraid as she was facing the cliffs, the precipice of injury. And she didn't want to climb. He said, much afraid. And she started imagining what it's going to be like. He said, much afraid. Don't ever allow yourself to begin trying to picture what it will be like. Believe me, when you get to the place which is your dread, you will find that they are as different as possible from what you have imagined. When we go into these spaces, trust me when I tell you, you imagine them to be hard. They are not hard. They are much worse than hard. When you encounter your dread, it is much harder than you imagine, but don't try. Together, we will find a way to trust God enough to enter some of these spaces. And so I leave you with this final piece because this is where I stand now. This journey has not ended, but just begun for me. At the end of her journey, before she gets to the high places, they come to this precipice, this canyon, and it is overwhelming. And she says, and it's called the grave, (laughs) the grave. And it says this, they came to the edge of a chasm and they stopped. This grave-like gorge yawned before them in each direction. Looking at her companions, sorrow and suffering, she asked quietly, when, oh, what do we do now? Can we jump across to the other side? No, they said, it would be impossible. What then are we to do, she asked. We must leap down into the grave, was the answer. Of course, said much afraid at once. I did not realize it at first, but now I see that is the thing to do. Then, for the last time on her journey, though she did not know that, she held out her hands to her companions, sorrow and suffering, that they might help her leap into the grave. She was so weak and exhausted, that instead of taking her hand, they propped their arms under her and leapt with her 
into the grave. In that valley called the grave, she landed lightly because her companions helped her. And it was out of that grave that she got to the high places. We have much life to be realized still as a church. And I have much life to be realized still as a man, as a follower of Jesus. But I suspect the journey to the high places will require a few more graves at different points. Graves that like that seed, when we realize them, bring life. And I pray for us that we would do that. I have had the incredible privilege of sitting with several of my children now. Eventually, I intend to do with all of them and to share with them what I have discovered, that I explained their pain away and promised it away, that I did not sit with them in it or give them space to process it, that I was often quick when I should have been slow, and I have grieved with them. And I've begun that journey with my wife also. And I've begun that journey with my staff and it is just beginning where I have much to repent and grieve with them on because there's been a lot of pain caused by my deficits of leadership. And I have yet with many of you to do the same because some of you I'm sure are sitting here going, oh, that's why it hurts so much. I thought he was nice and he is, but boy, it's hard. So I've caused pain. We all do to each other but we all get to own it when we do, if we want. And so to those here that my leadership deficits and personhood deficits have caused pain to, I am grieved. And I'm grateful that we have a life ahead where we can remedy that in time through the beautiful invitation of Scripture to come to each other, to share our hearts, to confess repent and forgive and to see life born out of death. Pray with me. God, thank you that you see us fully in our beauty and in our brutality. In what is right about us and what is wrong about us. Thank you that you have offered us such security in who you are, that we have the chance as we grow older to find less of our safety in the things that are our secure places and more of it just in you. God, all of us here are afraid and are driven by our fears. All of us here are secure in things we ought not to be and are driven to find it, our security in those things. And all of us here are insecure Thank you for giving me the chance to begin a journey of seeing fully, even though I know, God, I have not yet seen fully. I pray that you would offer me more caves in my future, that you would offer us caves in our future, where we would have the courage because of who you are to ask those around us, how do you experience me? And when we hear hard things, that we would trust you to give us the strength to see them, to grieve them, and to walk through them
to see them changed, transformed and redeemed by your power and grace toward us. Make us a church, God, that is better than we've been. Make us a church that's more honest than we've been. Make us a church that's more courageous than we've been. Not just in the charging into unredeemed spaces, but in the careful, slow, and quiet relational dynamics of being with each other and walking together into hard things. We do not know the way, but you do. You are our way. Walk with us into it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.